1: To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. John 17,
2: 21, he prays that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. John 17, 25, he further prays, He says, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And then in John 20, 21, finally, John 20, 21, he says, peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, so send I you. So John records all these quotes. The Father sent him, he's the Messiah. The Father sent him, he's the Messiah. The Father sent him, he's the Messiah. He wants us to know the Father has sent the Lord Jesus into the world, and this is what he has claimed. He's the Messiah, so that there would be no question about it. It's only in John's Gospel that he says clearly, no other Gospel, does he say clearly, I am the Messiah in John 4, when he sits with a woman at the well, and she says, well, the Messiah is going to do such and so, and he says clearly, I that speak unto you am he. He identifies himself so that there's no question at all. John brings this out to us. He is the Messiah. And that gives him the authority. That is his authority. That is the authority of his words, the authority of his truth, straight from God the Father. This is John's first goal. And that means that when you and I read this special book, The Gospel According to John, we should walk away from that and to say, I know he is the Christ, he is the Messiah sent from God. So from the Gospel of John, we should see clearly, God wants to have a conversation with man. And so he sends the Lord Jesus Christ, and the conversation with God, between God and man, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God's conversation with man. Then John has a second goal, and it's to show that he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Better understood by even saying, he is God, the Son. When the Lord Jesus Christ is called the Son of God, that's the same as calling him as God the Son. And John wants his readers to know beyond any shadow of a doubt, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. So he starts with this crystal clear statement at the beginning, the first verse in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Finished, period, clear. This shows John's second goal in the Gospel, to show clearly that Jesus is God. And when you and I read the Gospel of John, we should be led to the clear knowledge that Jesus is God, he's God the Son. So John chooses the histories and the life of the Lord to help us see that Jesus is God. And the last goal, that John has in writing his gospel. He's saying, look, I'm not just providing this information to you, I'm not a professor of Jesus. I'm not teaching you about him, just so that you'll have more more understanding about him, you'll be better educated. His last goal, he says, in writing his gospel is no shame, and he puts it right out there, he says, I've written this to persuade you. I've written this to change your mind. I wanna persuade my readers, John would say, to move their souls under God's umbrella. Because have you ever been caught in a rainstorm and you don't have an umbrella and then someone has got an umbrella and they say come on over here, come on, come under my umbrella. That's what God is saying. He's saying there's an eternal rainstorm of being cast into hell for man for his sins and God has set up an umbrella for man to come under it to be protected from the rainstorm. That's the umbrella of the cross. That's what we're gonna be remembering in the communion. That's the same umbrella as when the Israelites struck the top and the two sides of their door with blood. They struck it with blood. And blood, that was the blood of the Passover night. When God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, that was an umbrella for each house. And John doesn't want to educate his readers about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not John's goal in the gospel. He wants them to gain eternal life by believing into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Greek that when it says believe, it means believe into, believe into. Then you know, others, what does that mean to believe into? It means to be fully committed with a whole heart, obedience of life. And John is coming right out, and he's stating that his goal is to persuade his readers, get under God's umbrella, and for John, the eternal tragedy would be if a person read his gospel and just became better educated as he was being cast into hell. That would be a tragedy. So John is begging for unreserved obedience to the the demands of Christ. You know, the Titanic is sinking and it's not a time to rearrange the chairs on the deck of the Titanic, the boat's sinking. It's not a time to go out and to study all about the different lifeboats. So let's see, what's this one? Okay, what's that? It's not a time for that. It's a time to get in the lifeboat because the boat's sinking, and that's John's goal. And he says that here when he makes it very clear that he wants his readers to have eternal life by believing into the name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That name is so powerful. The full name, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's got three parts to it. When you say the Lord, you mean God. That's John's goal. He wants you to believe that he is God the Son. It is the Lord. It means God, the only God, the God Almighty, the one who created us, the one who made us. He is the God. He is is God the Son, who is one with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. To call Jesus the Lord is to call him God. His name is Jesus, which is a contraction of two words, Jehovah and Shua, Jehovah and Shua. Yeshua, Jesus, Yeshua, and it means God saves. God saves. That's the name of the. That's the meaning of the name Jesus. His name is Yeshua. His name is Jesus. His name is Yeshua, which means God saves. Now the word for man is Ish. Man is Ish. That's the Hebrew word for man is Ish. His name is not Yeshua. In other words, man saves himself. That's not his name. But sadly, most people today operate with an Ishua. In other words, I will save myself, man will save me. They believe they can save themselves by their good works, that's an Ishua. That reminds me of a dear friend of mine this last week who has cancer and when I told him that his time was running out, then he responds, yes I know, and I have thought back over my life and I have no regrets. That's Ishua, that's him saving himself by a life that has no regrets. So whenever we say the name Jesus, or Yeshua, Jesus, we're meaning to say God saves, and it's a stand against Yeshua. In other words, it's a stand against, I'm gonna save myself, or a man's gonna save me. So believing into Jesus is to believe that God saves, is to fully embrace the fact that we are lost sinners. We need to be saved. We're not unsaved, we're lost. And not nice sinners, dirty rotten sinners in desperate need of salvation. And then the last part of his name is Christ, which means Messiah, In which we've already saw. that. so that to believe into Christ is to believe that God sent him from heaven. He is God's statement to man. And when a person believes into him with 100% life commitment, with a wholehearted desire to obey his full name, Jesus Christ, God saves, he is the sent one. That person bows his knees to him as God. That person bows his knees to him as the sent one. That person receives him as the only way to be saved from sin. And when anyone does that, God saves that person and gives to that person the gift of eternal life. And that's, how, that's why John chose this history in the, of the arrest of the Lord in the garden because it's in this history that we see three points that really we wanna hone in on, which are the points that of the glory of Jesus as the Messiah, as God the Son, the willingness of Jesus as the Messiah, and the protection by Jesus the Messiah. So let's give this passage the title of Let These Go. Let these go from the Lord's words in verse eight. Now the account starts off with Judas Iscariot. Judas, who previously has made a business contract. He's made an agreement with the enemies of the Lord who want to kill the Lord. He has agreed with them that if they will give him 30 pieces of silver, that he will bring them to a private place where they will not be in danger of being stopped by the multitude, where they can arrest him without any fear of people. And so Judas knows, I know the perfect place. I know the perfect time because Judas knows of the secret garden. Judas knows of the secret garden where the Lord goes at night. And so Judas knows that in the dark of night, how it's going to be perfect for his enemies to arrest the Lord. So Judas agrees with the, and he brings this group of the officers to the secret garden at night. So the officers prepare to capture him, and they make their preparation with lanterns, with torches, and with weapons as they go and and get themselves ready to go into the secret garden. And we're told in verse four, the Lord knew this. The Lord knew all things. He knew this was happening. That meant he knew all about the negotiation between Judas and his enemies for the 30 pieces of silver. That meant that he knew each person that was gonna make up this posse to come and arrest him. And he knew all about the excitement and the anticipation of them that they felt of capturing the Lord. He knew it all. And verse four tells us that knowing it all and seeing the posse ready to come to arrest him, there's two words in verse four that are so meaningful when it says Jesus went forth. He went forth. He's with his disciples. The Lord's going from his disciples to meet the posse who's come to capture him Therefore, Jesus, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And this is the scene in verse 4. The Lord sees the group of his enemies. They're coming into the garden. They got the lanterns and the weapons to arrest him. And he steps forth. He asks them a question. And then they give, who are you seeking? Who are you searching for? And then in verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. Now, when the Lord responds with, I am, then the verse concludes by saying, Judas also was standing with them, which showed Judas' tragic decision, his tragic decision in verse five. And Judas also, which portrayed him, stood with him. I mean, what a scene that is. I mean, there's two sides. Clearly, there's two sides in this garden. On one side stands the Lord with his disciples, and the other side stands the enemies of the Lord, and Judas there, he's got a choice. Judas, you can repent. You can go over to the Lord's side. But no, it says that Judas stood on the side of those who were his enemies. He chose to stand with the enemies. That's the way it is today. That's the way it is today. There is a choice to either stand with the Lord Jesus Christ or to stand against him. There's no middle ground. There is no middle ground. There's no, out, there's no option to take no stand. It's either on the Lord's side or on the side of the enemies. And as soon as Jesus, as soon as the Lord says, I am, and by the way, you'll notice that it says, I am he, but you'll notice that he is in italics, which means that it's added, which indicates that the Lord only said the words I am. When he said that, when he said I am, right away, it goes back to Jehovah Jesus speaking to Moses at the burning bush when Moses asked him, "What is your name?" in Exodus 3:14, Exodus 3:14, and God said unto Moses, "I am that I am." And he said, "Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you." So here's a special title to be announced to the Jewish people to the children of Israel that God's name was I am. And that's the name that the Lord Jesus gave for himself when the men came to arrest him. And as soon as he says that, there's a strange recoil, very strange. All of a sudden in verse six, as soon as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. What happened? What happened? Why did they fall to the ground? You know why it was? It was because for a moment, just a moment, they got a glimpse, just a glimpse of the glory of God the Son. For a moment, they could see what the disciples saw in a place called a mount of transfiguration. Because there, at that, when it says that in Matthew 17, Matthew 17, 2, where it says, He was transfigured before them. His face did shine as the sun, his raiment was as white as the light. And that's where the disciples got to see what was inside the Lord Jesus, which was glory which is glory. How can we understand this? Just picture, for example, if you've been asleep at night and it's dark and you kind of get woken up and you you see a little bit of light coming under the closet door and you realize, ah, the light's left on at the closet door. And so you open the door and it's like, bam, it's so blinding. And then you immediately shut the door. What happened? For a moment, for a moment, you got a flash of a blinding light. That's what happened with them. The Lord's body is described as just a covering. It's just a covering of flesh that housed what John called in John 1.14. Again, John tells us in 1.14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Lord's body was just a housing. It was a housing for the glory of God, the glory of God's grace, the glory of God's truth. And when his captors heard the name I Am, they just saw the flash, just for a moment, of the brightness of that glory. And that flash knocked them backwards so that they became a heap of helpless flesh. Now, this is the first time the Lord has ever used this title. This was not the typical title that the Lord gave for himself. As a matter of fact, the Lord always called himself, you know what he always called himself? The Son of Man. He always called himself the Son of Man. And what he said about himself as the son of man in, again, John 12, 23, John 12, 23, is he linked something with his being the son of man when he said, the son of man should be glorified. He linked glory with the son of man. He linked seeing the son of man with seeing his glory. And the son of man refers to his humility, his humility. So in his humility, John 12, 23 is indicating to us, in his humility, his glory would be seen. And this is true of his life. In his humility as the son of man, he is arrested in this garden and his glory is seen by the captors who fall backwards when at the name of I Am. This is the pattern in his life. In his humility as the son of man, his glory was seen. In his humility at his birth, and we're in Christmas time now, so think about this. In his humility, he lies as an infant in a manger, and his glory is seen by a great multitude of angels outside announcing his birth, and a star that guides men from a long distance to come and worship him. In his humility, he's baptized by John, John says, oh no, no, I can't do that. I can't baptize you. But in his humility, he's baptized by John and his glory is seen by God the Father speaking from heaven and saying, this is my beloved son. In his humility, he's weak and he craves water. He just craves a drink of water by a well. And what happens? His glory is seen as he gives to this woman this sordid woman, the the water of eternal life. In his humility, he's totally exhausted as the son of man. He is exhausted, he goes to sleep on a fishing boat, and his glory is seen when he wakes up and he commands the sea to be still. In his humility, he's there at the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus is dead, and he's weeping as the son of man, And he says to the sister of Lazarus, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. In his humility, he's weeping, and the glory of God is seen as with a command, he calls Lazarus back to life. In his humility, he's sitting there in agony, absolute agony. He's sweating drops of blood in the garden. And what happens? In his humility, his glory is seen as angels from heaven come to minister to him. In his humility... He's going to be from this garden in a judgment of for capital crimes and his glory is seen when he announces he's coming back to judge all men. And in his greatest humility of all, as the son of man, his glory is seen when he dies on a cross in what appears to be a total defeat and yet his glory is seen by an earthquake that happens that releases dead people out of the grave They walk around and it shows that in his death he has achieved the greatest of all triumphs, the triumph over death. So here when they fall back at the name of I Am, we see the glory of the Messiah. Now, next we see, because they come here, with they barge into this this garden with their lanterns and their weapons, and it says in verse 4, he knows all things, and they've come to seize him, and then... We realize it was John also who recorded for us in John 8:59, John 8:59, of another time, when also his enemies came at that time, to kill him." And it says in John 8:59, "Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So at that time, he just walked by his enemies. They were trying to kill him, but he just, he hid himself. He walked by them. Why? Why did he do that at that time? It wasn't the Passover. It wasn't the Passover, and he was the Passover lamb to be killed on the Passover. He could have just walked by his enemies here in the garden like he did there in the temple. He could have just stepped right through them. He's, after all, walked through walls. He could have done that, but instead he steps forward and he says, I am, and when he did this, he in essence held out his hands and said, arrest me. That's what he did. That shows the willingness of him in his life and in his death. It's just one continuous voluntary surrender of himself for man's sins. Even at his birth, we see his willingness. Again, we're thinking about this in Christmas when he said in John 16, 28, John 16, 28, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world Again, I leave the world and I go to the Father. When he said that, when he said, I came forth from the Father and then come into the world, he was saying that he, he wasn't born like we were. You know, we were, we, we didn't, we, no one asked us if we should be born or not. And we didn't have any choice about whether or not we should be born, but he did. He did. He willed by his own choice to be born. When we consider a babe in the manger, we should look at that and to say that babe willed by his own choice to be born. He willed by his own choice to come into the world. The Bible says that in Hebrews 2:14. Hebrews 2:14 says, as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise himself took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of the death, that is the devil. See, those words, he also himself likewise took part of the same, means that he willed with his choice to take part in becoming flesh and blood.
1: Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher Tom Cantor here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries, you can visit that website at Israel You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box seven one one three three zero, 330 Santee, California 92071. That's P.O. Box seven one one three three zero, 330 Santee, California 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at Tom Cantor at FriendshipWithGod.org. That's Tom Cantor at FriendshipWithGod.org. For more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800 247 3051. That's 800 247 3051.
0: What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor